Again, it's good to see you all this morning, and as you're all well aware by now, this is Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of Holy Week. And throughout the course of this week, as part of our worship, our life, and service to Christ here at Church of the Atonement, we'll be having a series of services that correspond to what took place in Jesus' life, the final week of his life leading up to his crucifixion. So we have Palm Sunday today. I like to say this afternoon we'll be going out and we'll be actually singing uh, what we call Easter carols uh, to people who aren't able to be with us at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Those who won't be able to join us for worship, we want to go and join them and sing with them praise to Christ. And if you'd like to join us at 4 this afternoon, I hope you will do that. And then uh, on Thursday, Thursday night's Monday Thursday, the mandatum, the mandate Thursday, that's When Jesus had his last supper with his disciples and he gave them this new mandate, this new command to love each other, it's the last supper, we will have the Lord's Supper on Thursday night, Monday, Thursday. And uh, I believe that that's at 7.30. Is that correct? 7? Or 7.30? Help me. 7. And then on Good Friday evening, that of course recalls the day when Jesus was crucified. We'll have a beautiful service Good Friday evening, which is really scriptures and song. It's not a preaching service in which we go through the passion of Christ on that Good Friday when he was crucified. And then on Saturday, we have a very special program for children in the morning. And it is an Easter egg hunt, but it's a lot more than that. Uh, Austin Thompson, who's read the call to worship to you today, uh, Austin's been here for a month. He's an artist in residence. And he's been working with a whole crew of people, wonderful volunteers from Atonement, to put together a very special presentation. And the presentation will actually be on, on uh, Daniel, on Shadrach, Meshach, and, uh, and Abednego. But I want to encourage you to come. I think it'll be very, uh, it's going to be very powerful. And uh, the workmanship and the puppetry, the set, everything, uh, the sets, it's, it's just the media, it's, it's remarkable. So be bringing children, grandchildren, children from your neighborhood, come yourself, and, uh, and join us also on Easter Saturday leading up, to, uh, leading up to Easter Sunday, the Resurrection Day. Now today I'd like to read to you from, uh, from the Gospel of Luke, and uh, if you'd like to turn with me to Luke chapter 20 or 19. It is Luke chapter 19. I'm going to begin with verse 28. Now you see the picture behind me on the wall. I'd like you all to notice that. Um, it, uh, it cues you in on what we're going to be focusing on. There's a great rock there in the cliff. It seems to have a gaping mouth, a speaking mouth. And it says on the side, if you can't read it, it's scripture. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So I want you to be aware of what our focus in our sermon will be, even as I read this text to you. Beginning in verse 28. And after Jesus said these things, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where... On entering, you will find a colt tied, and on which no one has ever yet sat. 
untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and our Redeemer. Amen. We focus on that last verse. As you see, oh, the slide's off. You can put it back up if you'd like. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I want us to investigate, think this morning together about what Jesus was saying. What did he mean? And then how do we take this to heart in our own lives? What is this saying to us? about how we live our lives. Understand what Jesus is really saying. I think it's important to know what the Pharisees were demanding silence about. But was it the disciples were saying that was so offensive? And what they had just said was, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But of course, that's the very thing they couldn't keep silent about. I don't know if you noticed it, but there's something curious. It's sort of a juxtaposition in, uh, in what the disciples said. When Jesus was born, the angels of, from heaven were testifying to people on earth, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth. But now a people on earth, in re response to all of Jesus' incredible actions, all of his acts, were testifying to heaven, and instead of saying peace on earth, they were saying peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. Now, what does that mean? Well, by his very acts, they, they saw Jesus, you know, for who he was. They saw him as the fulfillment of God's peace promise to the earth. They saw him as the promise that heaven's peace, the fulfillment of the promise that heaven's peace would become earth's peace because God was going to come down and he was going to save his people and then he would dwell with his people forever. And all of these things clearly in their mind and heart were, were tied together. They, they had to be. These amazing things that Jesus had done and these, these uh, uh, profound prophecies that had been uttered from of old, they, they pointed what he had done, what those prophecies were, they, they pointed to Jesus as, as the Christ. He had to be tied in with that. So the multitude, you understand, they were writing an essay. 
They weren't responding to a, to a, a, an assignment in a class to make a logical argument. They were overwhelmed with joy. Uh, they were enraptured, really. They were caught up. They were transported in the moment. They were transported in mind and in heart to testify as if everything that was promised of the Messiah, all the promise that Jesus present there, having done everything that he had done, all the promise in Christ had been now fulfilled. It was as if standing here with Jesus on Palm Sunday, in their minds and their hearts, they were transported there to the last day when everything would be fulfilled, when God's peace in heaven would be peace on earth, and there would be glory to God in the highest forever and ever. Well, this was ecstatic nonsense. Or worse, it was blasphemy as far as the Pharisees were concerned and because Jesus was the disciples' teacher, they held him responsible for, for letting this rabble speak this way and, and act this way. At least they held him responsible for not stopping them if he was their teacher. And so they said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said to them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What he was saying to them is that it should be obvious to anyone who is of the truth, who desires truth, who loves the truth, that what they're testifying to is the truth. And it is the truth, of course, of God. All truth, truth comes from God. And this is the very revelation of God himself. This is the revelation that comes from God of the truth. And it cannot be repressed it cannot be repressed. You can try to silence these people. You can put them in prison. You can kill us all. But the truth cannot be repressed. Two weeks ago, we were looking at John chapter 9. We heard from a man born blind whose eyes Jesus had opened and he said a number of things so profoundly and so simply. And one of the things he said was, if this man, Jesus, who opened my, my eyes, though I've been blind from birth, and nothing like that's ever happened in the history of the world, which was true, he said, if this man was not from God, he could do nothing. And that testimony had been multiplied. Imagine that. That testimony had been multiplied hundreds and hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times in the miracles that Jesus had done wherever he went. In Tyre, in Sidon, in Chorazin, Bethsaida, Bethany, Beth, uh, uh, Capernaum, Jericho, Decapolis, the ten cities to the east of the Sea of Galilee, in Cana, in Jerusalem. Miracles that he'd done in the, in the hill country, along the shores of the Galilee, near the Jordan River, in the temple itself, and to all of these wonderful actions that Jesus had taken, we have to add, we have to see them against the backdrop of the prophets and the prophecies that had been fulfilled alongside this. Everything from his birth in Bethlehem to the rise of John the Baptist, the forerunner, 
to the inception of his ministry in Galilee, to that very moment in the Palm Sunday entrance, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem as Zechariah had prophesied. What more do we need to know? This, this, this man is the promised king. The promised anointed king. Kings are always anointed. And Christ, or Messiah, means anointed. This man is that promised king. Now you and I sit here with our complete Bibles. So when we read Palm Sunday, about Palm Sunday, we naturally understand Palm Sunday in light of what happened next. In light, of, in light of the cross, in light of the crucifixion, in light of Jesus' agonies and his suffering and his dying. But understand that on that first Palm Sunday, those who were exulting in God, that first Palm Sunday, because of Jesus, they naturally understood Palm Sunday in light of what had happened in the past, not what was going to happen in the coming week. They had no idea what was up ahead. Surely he had acted miraculously on so many occasions, in so many places, with so many people, in so many ways, in such remarkable harmony with what the prophets had written to show that he really is God's promised Messiah. God had promised through the prophets, the word that Isaiah and others used was new thing. God had promised through the prophets that he was going to do a new thing. And surely Jesus' coming was that new thing. And I think even today, skeptics, when they look back on the life of Jesus, everyone has to recognize he changed the world. He, his coming it really was a, a new thing. He was upending the natural causes of human misery. He was overturning human corruption just like the tables of the money changers in the temple. He was confronting and exposing sin in people who denied they had sin. He was confronting and calling for repentance from those who thought they needed no repentance. He was calling for an allegiance to God founded on what is true, on the truth, rather than on false appearances of human righteousness. This was a new thing. The truth was in him. He was that truth. And they, they hated him for that. And by his words, Jesus was saying to those Pharisees that though they'd suppress everyone, the word was irrepressible. It just simply is irrepressible because it's God's word. The truth is God's word. And he was the word of God in in person and in action. The gospel, the good news about Christ is just as much the word of God spoken and God has seen to it, will ever see to it, that his word is always, it will always have its witnesses in the world. Always. It's like whack-a-mole, you know? You want to knock the mole down here? He's going to come up. Well, he will always have his witnesses in the world, even if it has to be rocks. Always. So the multitude rejoiced and praised God when Jesus 
enter Jerusalem for what they had seen him do. What he had seen him do was what only the Messiah can do. And I don't want us to miss the potency of that today. But it is also true that our joy and our praise for God in Christ goes beyond theirs. Because what we have now is the benefit of having seen Jesus do not only, not simply, what only the Messiah could do, but he has done what only the Messiah must do to save his people. He must go before them in death. He must must make a way for them. He must destroy its power over them. He must defeat it once and for all. If he does not do that, what's the point of straightening a withered hand or giving sight to a blind man? What's the point of stopping in the flow of blood in a woman that has been unstopped? What is the point of that? If he does not destroy death, he has not saved his people. If he has not made a way for them, he has not saved them. And what we understand is not only that Jesus did what only the Messiah could do, he has done what only the Messiah must do to save his people. He didn't meet death with apocalyptic fury. He didn't slash death to pieces with a with a, with a blinding light slave. But Jesus defeated death for us. He defeated actually our death. He defeated death by making our death his own. By taking our death to himself. As if he were the sinner dying for his sins. As if he were the God-estranged man facing the ultimate catastrophe, the void of death. And the judgment to follow. That's how he defeated death. For us, he made our death his own. He took it on himself. He was coming to feed himself to death. He would have it swallow him. He would have it attempt to devour and digest him just as the the fish had swallowed Jonah. But then he would burst from it. He He would arise. He would leave death in its ruins so that the one who is in him need never fear death. He has defeated their death for them. And it will have no power over you who are in Christ. And in whom Christ is, you in Christ, him in you, has no power. Death has no power over you because it has no power over him. If you're in him and he's in you, you have absolutely nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Just like the Israelites coming to the edge of the Red Sea, so terrified, and got made away to that deadly place. And they walked through on dry land because of God, what God did. And Jesus came to make that way for us through death.
by taking our death on himself. There is that wonderful, mysterious verse that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians as he reflected on Jesus' defeat of death and how it assures us or ensures our defeat of death as well. And what Paul wrote was, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what is that saying? Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It goes on to say that the sting of death is sin. This is the reality. The reality is that the cause of death, the reason for death, the certainty of death is our sin. If it weren't for sin, there would be no death. And when I talk about our sin, I mean first and foremost, humanity, our sin in Adam, sin that corrupts our nature with which we are born, our human nature, as I've said many times in this pulpit, our human nature does betray us. And it is that sin then that we know also in the sins that we commit. There would be no death, let alone any fear of death, except for sin. Sin is what ensures there is death. So the sting of death is sin. And when Paul writes, and the power of sin in the, is the law, what does he mean by that? What he means by that is this. He's saying that sin could not ensure our death except that before a holy God and all that he has revealed of his holiness, which we have in the law, before a holy God and all that he has revealed, our sin is self-condemning. Our condemnation is not about what someone else thinks of us or what someone else accuses us of. What condemns us is our sin, and our sin is fully revealed, and it is fully exposed in the light of God's holiness and the light of his truth. And before that, no one has anything to say. The Bible says every mouth will be closed. There's nothing to say. There's no excuse. There's no defense against the truth. There's no appeal against the truth. It just is what it is. And what you need to understand and what is so important is that the death that Jesus died was not his own but ours. It was not for his sin but because of ours so that the sting of our death was actually embedded in him. You have to understand that in taking our sin on himself it was because our, our death to himself it was because he had taken our sin to himself. And he not only took that sting of death within himself, he held on to it. He would not let go of it. Death lost its sting in him. Death cannot recover it. Death's power to destroy forever has been removed forever by Christ. So if you're in him and he is in you, you have nothing to fear. 
And that's what faith is all about. It is union with Christ, Christ in me, me and Christ. I'm united with him through faith, through trust, believing in him. That's a spiritual act. It's a spiritual act of uniting to another. The analogy is so potent that Paul used. Maybe we could have the next slide for a minute. Do you know what happens when a honeybee loses its sting? What happens? It dies. Its power is broken. Now this is an amazing picture, an amazing picture of a worker honeybee who has just stung the arm of a man. And you see the stinger in the arm? Nod if you see the stinger on the left in the arm. And you see the honeybee in the right flying away? Very good. And do you see that there's something that connects the honeybee to the stinger? And that, I will be delicate here, that is the end of the, stun- of the, of the, of the bee. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. And the bee is going to die. That's the end of the bee. And you know, a honeybee, a honeybee can sting all kinds of different insects. One honeybee can sting and kill a lot of insects. One honeybee can still and king sting and kill a number of creatures. The problem is that if it stings a human being, if it stings at that particular creature, us, that's the last sting it will ever sting because our skin is thick and our skin is tough. It loses its stinger. The one who was stung, whose heel was bruised, recovers. But the bee who lost his sting dies. Every one of us loves the story of a champion. Someone who goes out for his people and crushes a tyrant who is so much more powerful and it seems so doubtful that even the champion can crush him, but then he does. I tell you, in Christ, death more than met its match. And that's why theologians speak about the death of death in the death of Christ. He took it to himself. He not only died for you, he died died because, because he'd taken the sting of your sin as well. The book of Hebrews says exactly the same thing, but with a different analogy of food. It says, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones will cry out. Here's what I'd like us to take to heart. I said we'd look at what it means, and we'd look at how we take it to our lives. This word Jesus spoke is a word of very deep assurance for the church of Christ. The Church of Christ persecuted, Andrew Brunson in prison, the Church of Christ in this room, 
in the midst of whatever kind of antagonism or challenge to your faith or opt, uh, attempts to silence you, silence you may be. What it assures you of is that no matter what you face, no matter what you're enduring, no matter what voices are speaking in your head or threatening you or warning you, that no matter what you face, the Word of God is irrepressible. It is irrepressible because it's the truth. And in your witness for Christ and in your witness for, as a Christian, what you are doing is you are standing for the truth. And honestly, there's nothing else to stand for. And there's nothing else to stand on than the truth. And that's what he calls us to do when he calls us to testify of him. And those who scoff at having never felt the power of the truth, of never having known the satisfaction or the fulfillment that the truth brings to our soul and spirit, those who scoff because they have never died without the truth, and they don't know how wonderful death is in the truth. They scoff at the truth because really they hate God. They know the truth, the world knows, truth is inseparable from God. And because they reject God, they will reject truth. Because to believe truth is to bear witness to God whom they cannot stand. But it is for us who love truth to grow both in our worship and our witness. Because worship and witness are two sides of the same coin of, being, of testifying for the truth, of crying out to that which is truth, that which is the very word of God. In our worship, we testify before God of, to the truth of his word, and we love him for that. And in our witness before the world, we testify to the truth of God's word, and we love him for that. That's what we're doing when we testify before, before the world in our worship and our witness. They are absolutely inseparable. They cannot be played off against one another as if one was more important and one was less important or as if really I'm free to focus on the one or to ignore the other or to choose one and, and just neglect the other. No, that is not what we're free to do. This is the very word of God that we're talking about, the very truth that Christ has given you about himself and about reality and about you and about your neighbor. So keep in mind, just keep in mind, that the goal of your adversary, the goal of the Pharisees in your life, is to silence your voice. Whether it be your voice in worship, so you come here and you go through the motions in worship, whether it be your voice in witness, so you really are silent about Christ before the world, he's here to silence your voice. And the adversary, the Pharisees in your life, will be happy to settle for half a loaf. Half a loaf is better than no loaf. That is to silence your worship so it's insincere, it's ineffective, it's hypocritical, or to silence your witness so no one knows. And you go through your week you know, without a conscious love for Christ, and there's no expression of the truth 
from you to anyone around you. And all I would say to you is that your Pharisees in your life, they will settle for half a loaf. But don't you even give them one half of the loaf of worship or of your witness because it's your faithfulness to the word, the very truth that's at stake. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for this portion of your word. And uh, we just thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his amazing uh, faithfulness to you and to us. This deep, deep love. And I pray that you administer to us the delight and the satisfaction and the joy uh, of the truth that we'd be strengthened, that we'd be recovered, that we would be refreshed, that the cloudiness of our minds and hearts would, would give way really to the brightness, the brightness of Christ and the reality of eternal life. And I do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.